The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Luke, glory to you, Lord Christ. Now the sinners and tax collectors were drawing near to Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And so he told them this parable. He said, a man had two sons. The younger of the two said to his father, Father, give me the share of the inheritance that is coming to me. And so he divided his property between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey to a far country where he squandered his property on reckless living. And when he spent everything, a severe, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in want. So he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him into the field to feed the pigs. And he longed to be fed with the pods that the pigs were eating but no one gave him anything. And when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread and here I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And so he arose and came to his father but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, had compassion on him, ran to him, embraced him, and kissed him. And he said, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it that we may eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive. He was lost and is now found. And they began to celebrate. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Let us pray. Father, we believe that you inspired your servant Luke to record these words of Jesus. We believe these words not only had power in the day that Luke wrote them, but these words have power this day unto our salvation because they're inspired by your Holy Spirit. And so we pray, come Holy Spirit, open this word to us as never before that we would be changed more and more by the gospel to be like Jesus. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to be seated. <clears throat> Why does Jesus welcome sinners and eat with them? Why does Jesus welcome sinners and eat with them? It's the question behind this parable. This parable of the prodigal son or the parable of the two lost Sons, as we'll see next week, we're in the second of three weeks examining this here in Luke chapter 15. If you've got your Bibles or grab a pew Bible or grab your iPhone and turn to Luke 15, you'll see at the beginning of the chapter, this question about Jesus welcoming sinners and eating with them is what launches Jesus into these three parables, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and finally the lost sons. See, the challenge is that the Pharisees and the scribes are scandalized by Jesus' behavior eating with the wrong people. Because in their mind, from their perspective, it's sending the wrong message about who God is. 
right? The Pharisees and the tax collectors have one perspective on who God is. And Jesus is displaying something very different. See, Jesus eats with sinners and tax collectors to show sinners, lost children, you and me, what the Father is really like. He does this act of eating with us to show us what the Father's really like. Again, it's that picture of perspective. We, we operate based on our own limited perspective all the time. Right? We make all kinds of decisions based on our perspective. This last Wednesday, for example, with the limited perspective I had with all the different weather channels, we looked at the weather that was coming on planet and said, it's gonna, free, it's gonna go a little bit below freezing. You know, a little bit below freezing, ice comes, everyone dies in Plano. So we said, all right, based on this, we're going to close the campus. Now, again, I think it still was the right decision with the information we had at the time. It was the right decision, err on the side of safety. But here's what I've been most concerned about ever since I closed the campus for what turned out to be really no ice at all. No one in Canada can hear about this. Like, you can't put this on social media. You can't talk about this. I will never outlive this. See, perspective matters. And what Jesus is giving us is perspective, his perspective on who the Father is. No one knows the Father but the Son. Jesus is showing us who the Father really is. And specifically, as we look today at the father principally, last week we looked at the younger son. This week we look at the father. Next week, the older brother. But for now, the father. We see that what Jesus is showing sinners, what he's showing lost children about the father is that the father is gracious, full of grace. And we, we see this grace specifically in the fact that this is the father who will graciously run to a lost child. Not wait for the son to come all the way home and stand at the door and wait for the father to finally answer the door. No, this father runs to lost children graciously. But not only graciously runs to lost children, this father will graciously redeem lost children. He's gonna bear the full cost of redeeming these lost children. And finally, not only will he run to these lost children and redeem at full price these lost children, but he will restore lost children to their inherited place in his kingdom. This concept of grace, this idea, this concept of unearned favor, unearned blessing, I believe is probably the hardest concept for a human being to really acknowledge and live into. You, you think it'd be the other way around, wouldn't you? Think it'd be hard for us to acknowledge, you know, that we're sinners. No, it's not hard for us to acknowledge we're sinners. It's not hard to believe that somehow we could be put in the position of having to earn back every wrong thing we've done in our lives. And our world is full of that. The thing that our world is not full of, except by this father, is the concept of grace, unearned favor and merit and love. And we will spend the rest of our lives struggling to believe in the Father's grace. See, first in this story, we see Jesus is showing lost children 
the father who graciously runs to them. Verse 20, while he, the son, the younger son who's run away and blown his inheritance, embarrassed the family, when he was still a long way off, verse 20 says, this father saw him. We got to stop right there and say, well, how did the father see him a long way off? He could have only seen him a long way off if the father had been watching. Watching and waiting for his son's return. The son, as he wanders home, may wonder, have they even missed me? Did they even care that I left? Have they thought about me at all? And the first thing we see from this father is that he has been waiting and watching for this lost boy since he left. But he doesn't just watch. No, in compassion, the father runs to him, verse 20 says. Verse 20, he felt compassion, which is that Greek word splanknon, which means his guts are torn up. He has such compassion, love, a churned up sense of just yearning for his son that he sees him and he runs for him. And here comes amazing grace. The fact that the father runs for the son, do not misunderstand it only as excitement that his son has come home. No. The father runs to protect his son from that moment when he reaches the village gate. You see, the father knows what's going to happen at the village gate. The villagers, to quote Kenneth Bailey, these villagers who certainly had told the father again and again, you never should have given him the money, will treat this boy upon his arrival with mocking, a crowd will gather. Spontaneously word will run through the village. Oh, the sun has come home. Come and watch this spectacle. Word flashes across the village, telling of his return. He is subject to taunt songs and many other types of verbal abuse and perhaps physical abuse. The father knows this is what will happen. And so he runs to meet the son at the village gate to protect his son from this humiliation. But here's what you got to understand. In the ancient Near East, men of standing do not run. They don't run. It, it, it's, it's inglorious. It's impractical. It's shameful. Because men in the ancient Near East are dressed similarly to me right now. Robes, flowing robes. Fathers, men of standing can't run. Because if you're going to run in this, what must you do? You must hike your robes up and shamelessly bear it all to sprint through town. Ladies, you know what this is like when you're wearing a long dress. Men who get ordained as clergy suddenly begin to understand stairs become a problem, let alone sprinting after a lost returning son. The father is running through town. Men do not do this. He's humiliating himself. He's a spectacle. He's an embarrassment. What is he doing? The villagers and even the returning son think, Dad, what are you doing? Humiliation. But he runs to protect his son. 
He's willing to bear the humiliation, hear this, to spare his son's humiliation. The father chooses to become the humiliated one, to spare his son of the humiliation that the son deserves. But the father will bear it. The village is not talking about this boy anymore. They're talking about the shameful running father. And this is how grace works. Grace in scripture works this way. God deals with us taking that which is ours, the penalty for our sins on himself, even the humiliation. Think of the crown of thorns. Holy Week is not that far away. Think of the crown of thorns on Jesus. This mockery of a crown piercing him. In Mark chapter 15, verse 17, we read this about the soldiers taking Jesus before his crucifixion and they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisted together a crown of thorns and they put it on him and they began to salute him, hail king of the Jews. And they were striking his head with reeds and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they'd mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and they led him out to crucify him. And the humiliation continues as he bears his own cross to Calvary. And as he is nailed there bearing the sins of humanity, naked, bearing all the shame, all the scorn, he's taking the humiliation that we deserve on himself. This is how grace works. This is what the father will do for a returning lost child. But Jesus is not only showing lost children that the father graciously runs to them, but that the father graciously redeems them. How will the son redeem himself. I mean, he's ruined everything. He's lost half the property. He's shamed the family. How can he possibly redeem himself for all that he's done? How can he face his father? And then he comes up with a plan. It's a speech. As he's in that pigsty coming to himself, he has a speech that emerges and he says, okay, this is how I'm going to redeem myself. I'm going to go home. And the whole way home, he practices this speech. We see the speech both at verse 18 and 19 and at verse 21. At verse 18 and 19, his speech clearly memorized because when he gets to 21, you're going to see how similar it is. Verse 18, 19, three-part speech. Here's what he's going to say. Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And so he's got that three-part speech and he goes over it. This is how he's going to redeem himself. This is what he's going to say when he gets home. But something dramatic happens in this story that changes his speech. Because when he gets to verse 21, after his father greets him, his speech has moved from three parts to two parts. And you might think, well, maybe he just forgot the speech. No, the first two parts are verbatim, identical. Verse 21, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But what happens to the third part that just drops off? Some say, well, maybe the father just interrupted him and carried on. No, that's not what happens here. 
The son intentionally drops the third section of his redemption speech. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Because here's what the third part of the redemption speech really means. Treat me as one of your hired servants means, Father, give me a job. I deserve nothing. But give me a job and maybe, I don't know how, but maybe I can pay this back. Like, hire me. Okay, I'm dying and I recognize how much I've lost. So give me a job that I can earn it back. Somehow, Father, let me earn this. Let me fix this. Let me make this up to you. Why does he drop that section out? Because of what happens just before his speech to his father. Just before his speech to his father, the son is confronted with the reality that before the son even opens his mouth to speak, the father has already redeemed him. Because verse 20, which comes in just before his speech, not only does the father watch for him and run for him, but it says that he embraced him and kissed him in front of everybody. And again, in the ancient Near East, to kiss someone is the kiss of peace. It's the sign of reconciliation. It's the sign of acceptance. It's the sign of welcome. It's the sign of family. It's the sign that all is now well. There was a, there's a reference in 1 Peter chapter 5. Where Peter says, greet one another with a holy kiss. Right? That sign of peace that should, exi- should exist in the life of the community. You know, there was a moment actually in the 1979 prayer book revision when they were writing it that they actually thought that maybe they would bring back the kiss of peace. Like instead of, you know, peace be with you, it, like the priest would say, and now share that holy kiss. It was the 70s, okay? So thankfully, you know, we didn't go that direction. People in Greece and Mediterranean countries, they get the the kiss of peace. I don't think Texans would ever fully embrace the kiss of peace on a Sunday morning. You want to try it? No, let's not not try it. Um, (laughs) But it's beholding this grace from the Father before he even says a word that changes his speech from three parts to two. All that remains is confession, no solution. See, part one and part two are vital. They're confession. Like, hear this, the son has got to confess his sins. Part one and part two are absolutely vital. I have sinned against heaven before you. You bet you have. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. No, you're not worthy to be called my son anymore. You have totally broken the relationship. You've broken everything in our relationship. These two are absolutely true and must be confessed. But the third part is the solution, which must be dropped. Because as he beholds the gracious redemption of his father, the gracious embrace before he's even spoken a word, he realizes that he can offer no solution. It's not about the money he lost. He's broken everything. This relationship can only be offered back to him as a pure gift from the Father that he could never repay. And so he drops the solution and simply confesses. As 1 John chapter 1 says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. 
But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We need to remember this as we bring our sins to our Heavenly Father. That we bring confession, we don't bring solution. When we try to mix our confession to God with our own self-fixing solutions, it stops being confession. And it becomes some kind of works righteousness. It becomes some kind of bartering between us and God. We bring our confession and we know that we have no solution. We can only receive his gracious embrace and kiss of peace. It's a major theme of the Reformation. Our Eucharistic prayer is written very carefully when it says that Jesus offered himself once for all on the cross. In other words, Jesus doesn't have to get crucified over and over and over again every time I sin and bring back my confession. No, his crucifixion took my sin and your sin and the world's sin, all of it. And if we will receive that grace by faith, it's ours. Every time we come back to the cross, every time we we lay those sins at the foot of the cross, we don't find a brand new crucifixion. We find, yes, here again is another millionth example in my life why Jesus already died for my sins. Once for all, taken. The son came home to fix everything and instead found grace. Grace. You can't fix this. You can only receive it as gift. See, Jesus is showing lost children that the Father not only graciously runs to his children, not only redeems his children bearing the full cost, but Jesus is showing lost children the Father who will graciously restore them. And this is where it gets nuts. I mean, if it's not crazy already, this is, this is crazy grace. Verse 22 and 23. Full restoration. Like nothing's held back from this redeemed son. Put a robe. Oh, not just the robe, the best robe. Well, who's got the best robe in the household? The father. He's the master of the house. Put the best robe on him. My own robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his finger. Oh, it's probably a signet ring, which is the family crest. This is the means by which you make deals and purchase and sell in the market and enter your family into contracts. This is the ring of the son who has power over the credit cards of the bank accounts. You're giving the son who just squandered half the property a visa card? I mean, if we don't make one payment on our cards, we get an email from Experion saying, you know, your credit just dropped. This father gives him the full executive privileges of a son. Put shoes on his feet because sons and daughters wear shoes. Servants don't wear shoes. Sons and daughters wear shoes. Put the servants, get the servants to put shoes on my son's feet. And finally, the fatted calf. Kill the fatted calf that we may eat and celebrate 
And here's what's amazing about the fattened calf is that in the ancient Near East, um, you'd expect the father to kill a goat or a lamb because a family can eat a goat or a lamb. That's like an in-household meal. If you kill the fattened calf, okay, we're Texans. We can imagine some fat cows, okay? The fattened calf takes a whole village to eat. The father is not just throwing a party in his house. He's throwing a party for the whole village, requiring by obligation that the whole village will come. And it's not just, again, like the running. It's not just excitement. Oh, let's bring them all together. No, he's doing something intentional here. He's bringing the whole village together. He's feeding them. And as the brisket is in their mouths, he's saying to those villagers, you came to the party. Guess what? You're acknowledging Witness before me that this is my son who was dead and is now alive. He was lost and is found. And don't any of you in this village ever suggest to him or to me or anyone else that this is not my son. It's a public restoration. And you got to ask, why wouldn't he just restore him in steps? Like, why wouldn't he just do a partial restoration a bit at a time? Let's see how he does. And the answer is because he's a son. Either you're a son or you're not a son. Either you're a daughter or you're not a daughter. There's no halfway measures. There's no halfway status of sons and daughters in the kingdom of God. Either you're a son and a daughter or you're not. And this son is a son. And so he has the full privileges, the full royal privileges of being an heir as Galatians chapter four. Paul says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoptions as sons and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God. Sons and daughters of God are sons and daughters of God with fully restored privileges. And this even applies to those not just those who are formerly churched who then run away from God and then come home, get their, you know, executive privileges restored. This is also a restoration for those who've never been churched. As they come to God for the first time, what's being restored to them is the purpose that was given to humanity in Eden. That echo of Eden, which is in our very DNA, which says we were put here in order to have dominion over our father's world. And when a lost son or daughter comes home, even for the first time, it is that restoration to purpose. You have a role in this world. Yes, you worthless, rotten sinner son and daughter. I've redeemed you. And therefore, I've restored you. One of my favorite moments at the end of uh, C.S. Lewis's The Horse and His Boy, I think it's the best of the Chronicles of Narnia. I've said that pretty much about every one of them, haven't I? At the end of The Horse and His Boy, one of the moments, and, and by the way, if you think like, oh, you shouldn't do this, like spoiler alerts, 
You know, you shouldn't tell the end of the story, you know. Well, here, guess what? You know, you all know I quote C.S. Lewis in Narnia all the time. I've got a Narnia sticker, a decal, a decal on my car, okay? So you, you've, like, if you haven't read Horse and His Boy by now, like, that's just your own fault. I've been here four years, okay? So, so the end of the Horse and His Boy, Shasta, the little beggar boy, is discovered to, in fact, be the lost twin brother of twin son of the king of Arkenland. And there's this glorious moment when this little beggar boy, who's never known this, it's revealed that in fact, his twin brother, Corin of Arkenland, is discovered standing right next to him. And they say, do you not see this, see the significance, see the, see the similarity? And they give him the name that he was given at birth. They say, here's your brother Corin, your core. And by the way, you're the older brother, which means now you're gonna inherit the throne. And in that moment, the, the, the little beggar boy has the whole court kneel without hesitation. Has he earned it? Has he shown his executive powers and wisdom? No. The court recognizes what is his by inheritance. He's a son. See, such grace such grace, the father running graciously, the father redeeming graciously, taking all the burden of redemption on himself, the father restoring us graciously. It, it seems reckless, doesn't it? It seems lavish, undisciplined, prodigal. That's what the word means. Prodigal means lavish, undisciplined, reckless. And as we encounter the prodigal love and grace of this father, we realize that this parable has been misnamed. Sure, the younger son is reckless, prodigal, but that's not a surprise. There's nothing surprising about the younger son's prodigal behavior. It's common. Every human being falls into this pattern. What is not common, what is truly prodigal, is this grace and love offered by the father. This the world has never seen anywhere but in this father. He is the prodigal. He is lavish. As 1 John 3 says, Behold, what manner of love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. See, the villagers are going to struggle with this Father's prodigal grace and love. The son himself is going to struggle to really believe this father's prodigal love. And you and I will spend our whole lives struggling to believe and accept and receive the father's prodigal love. Henry Nouwen, who wrote The Return of the Prodigal Son, which was written primarily as a reflection, just looking at the Rembrandt painting, a portion of which is on the bulletin each week of this series. Henry Nouwen writes these words describing his struggle to accept the grace of this father. He says, although claiming my true identity as a child of God, I still live as though the God to whom I am returning demands an explanation. I still think about his love as conditional and about home as a place that I'm not yet fully sure of. 
While walking home, I keep entertaining doubts about whether I will truly be welcome when I get there. I realize my failures and I know that I've lost the dignity of my sonship. But I'm not yet able to fully believe that where my failings are great, grace is always greater. Where my failings are great, the Father's grace is always greater. Grace is hard to believe and hard to receive. Our whole world is based on merit and earning status. And so we as Christians, even as those who have returned to the Father, will again and again be tempted week after week to begin trying to solve our own sin, to find solutions, to fix ourselves. We will try to do something other than receive his grace. And so Jesus gives us a meal. A meal that we celebrate every time we gather. A meal which we sometimes refer to as a means of grace. And this meal that we celebrate every week is training us to believe and receive what we could never earn. We are rehearsing grace. We are rehearsing the process of believing and receiving the Father's amazing grace every time we come to this table. Why does Jesus welcome sinners and eat with them? To show sinners, lost children like you and me, who the Father really is the father of grace, who graciously runs to lost children, who graciously redeems lost children at the full price born on himself, and the father who graciously restores lost children to their status as sons and daughters in his kingdom. Each week, you and I get lost. Whether a little bit or a lot, we get lost And we get found here because Jesus welcomes sinners and eats with them still. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.